Hello, and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardan Ganeri and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, A Tangled Web, The Age of the Sutra. It's at this point in our story that things get complicated. Indian intellectual life in the period we've already covered was lively, to say the least, but now we're going to see such a proliferation of philosophical texts, movements, schools, and rivalries that it may be hard to keep track of them all. Historians have stepped forward to offer ways of organizing all this material. They have made a basic distinction between so-called orthodox and heterodox movements, with the orthodox movements growing out of the Brahmanic culture of the Vedas. On this side, historians have spoken of six systems or schools that took on the ideas we find in works like the Upanishads, certain passages of the epics, the Dharma Sutras, and the laws of Manu. These six schools are Samkhya, Yoga, Nyaya, Vaisheshika, Mimamsa, and Vedanta. Collectively, they would represent the Hindu perspective, which will be challenged by skeptical and relativist attitudes among heterodox thinkers meaning basically Buddhists and Jainas, who opposed orthodox theories concerning ritual, metaphysics, and epistemology. In an earlier episode, we already expressed our dissatisfaction with this relatively neat account. The most obvious problem is that it very much reflects the so-called Hindu point of view. Orthodox literally means right-believing, so framing things in this way is almost like saying there were two kinds of Indian philosophers, the good guys and the other guys. While we're at it, it's also problematic to refer to the six orthodox schools as Hindu. We've occasionally applied the term Hindu to works that express traditional Brahmanic and Kshatriya values, as when we called the Mahabharata a Hindu epic. But in fact, the application of the name Hindu to such early texts is a rather contentious bit of retrospective labeling. The label of orthodoxy also suggests an unrealistic degree of agreement between the six schools. It's true that some of these philosophical movements eventually grow together. In the 11th or 12th century, the Vaisheshika and Nyaya systems effectively merged to form a single school, so that scholars feel free to speak of a single Nyaya-Vaisheshika philosophy. We also see an intimate association between Samkhya and Yoga. But it would hardly be worth distinguishing the systems into six if they all ultimately coalesced into a single Hindu outlook. In fact, there were prolonged disputes between these so-called orthodox schools and, for that matter, within individual schools. These often split apart into sub-traditions, much as we saw with the Jainas dividing into the white-clad and sky-clad factions. So, we want to suggest a different and more ideologically neutral contrast based on the way that philosophical texts were actually written. In the coming episodes, we are going to look at what we will call the Age of the Sutra. This is a period stretching over the first several centuries AD, when philosophy centered on the interpretation of compressed lapidary statements called sutras, literally meaning threads. So pregnant with meaning were these sutras that commentary was needed to deliver their meaning fully. These further explanatory texts are called bhashyas. It's something we already saw with the Sanskrit grammar of Panini, which was written in the form of sutras. It received an influential bhashya in the period we are now going to be considering 
from the pen of the 2nd century AD grammarian Patanjali. As we'll see shortly, the age of the sutra is also the age in which Sanskrit, the language of the Vedas, becomes dominant across the spectrum of philosophical writing. So it's apt, and presumably no coincidence, that Panani's eight chapters provided a model for the way text would be written. Each school traced its ideas to a founding text produced in the form of sutras, which were made the subject of authoritative commentary in basyas. In fact, the habit of pairing sutra with basya was so deeply ingrained that in some cases, a single author might write both the aphoristic remarks and a commentary of his own on those remarks. It may seem perverse of us to put so much emphasis on the sutra format. Isn't the content more important than the form in which the content is presented? But we shouldn't underestimate the way that the form of the text shapes the content and shapes the way the text is understood by readers. Philosophy in this period was moving away from the exhortations and evocations of the earlier period, when philosophies of path and purpose were dominant, and towards systematic inquiry. This went hand in hand with the writing of Bashya commentaries. A good Bashya was one that uncovered the philosophical principles and arguments implicit in the sutras being commented upon, exposing the coherence and completeness of the ideas and showing how those ideas could be justified and defended from the criticisms of rivals. It is the job of the commentator to weave the threads into a unified conceptual web, which commentators called a tantra, literally meaning warp, the kind of warp involved in weaving, not the kind involved in Star Trek. Vatsyayana, the author of a major commentary on the Nyaya Sutra, explained that a tantra is a system consisting in the statement of a collection of interrelated ideas. We also see commentators characterizing their task as the amplification or expansion of what is said in the sutra. So, to use a metaphor that would be somewhat more at home in Star Trek, a sutra is like an uncompressed data file that needs to be decompressed, its meaning unfolded by the commentator who adds the basya. This was no easy task. From Panani's eight chapters onwards, sutras typically seem to be nothing more than lists, offered to the reader as a series of isolated statements with no organizing structure or principle. It was the commentator's job to impose, or he would say reveal, an intelligible structure on this material. He would begin by identifying the chief overall theme of the text at hand, and then divide the sutras by sub-theme into groups, thus turning what was a mere list into something more like a network of ideas and arguments with clear interrelationships. The goal was not to provide an alternative version of the text that is easier to follow, as if the basya could simply replace the sutra. Rather, it was to guide the reader through the original text. Like the Greek commentaries devoted to Plato and Aristotle in the same historical period, the basyas have a fundamentally pedagogical purpose. Our focus on the sutra form almost, but not quite, divides the intellectual terrain along the same fault line identified by the older orthodox versus heterodox contrast. For the six so-called systems all use the sutra-bhashya style of composition, whereas the Buddhists did not. However, the division isn't exactly the same, because there were other sutra-based philosophical movements outside the supposedly orthodox Hindu mainstream. In particular, we will need to look at Charvaka philosophy. 
This is not one of the six systems, but it does have its own foundational document in the shape of Brihaspati's Charvaka Sutra. Another warning is needed here, by the way. As we'll see, Brihaspati did not emerge from nowhere with his sutra. He was not boldly going where no one had gone before. Rather, he continued an older tradition of naturalism that began already with Payasi, who was probably a contemporary of the Buddha. And that's typical. Each founding text is ascribed to a founding father, so that we have Gautama initiating Nyaya philosophy with his Nyaya Sutra, Patanjali beginning Yoga philosophy with his Yoga Sutra, and so on. But we need to reckon with the possibility that these supposed foundations were themselves built out of found materials. Usually, people think of the sutras as the oldest canonical texts of the various traditions. But it would be safer to think of them as the oldest surviving texts that came to be recognized as canonical in each tradition, and to remember that sutras may, in part, be compilations based on still older, otherwise lost literature. This helps to explain another feature of the sutras that doesn't fit very well with the usual antithesis between orthodox and heterodox philosophies. The agenda and terminology of the supposedly unorthodox traditions frequently turn up in orthodox literature. If you turn to the Yoga Sutra, you'll find the idea that we can escape the cycle of rebirth by eliminating all desire, obviously an echo of Buddhism. This is not entirely surprising. In the earlier period, we saw a gap opening between Brahmanic culture and the Shramana movements, the groups who emphasized renunciation and an ascetic path to liberation, the Buddhists, Jainas, and Ajivakas. But, as in a good history of philosophy, we also saw this gap being closed. Non-attached action and non-violence, for example, were motifs that appeared on both sides of the divide between Brahmanic and Shramana philosophy. At the political level, we also saw how rulers might pay due respect to sages of both persuasions. The standout example is Ashoka, who is best known for his attraction to Buddhism, but in fact seems to have seen himself as transcending sectarian division. Ashoka was exceptional, but in this case he was the exception that proved the rule. Later rulers would continue to bestow favor on both Brahmanic and dissident groups. Toward the end of this age of the sutra, we find a southern dynasty called the Ikshvakus, whose female members gave gifts to the Buddhists, while the male kings carried out Vedic sacrifices. Archaeologists are grateful that later rulers followed Ashoka in yet another respect. As he had done, they occasionally put up stone inscriptions to communicate with their subjects. In fact, there are even cases where a king added inscriptions of his own alongside the words of Ashoka. This was done around 150 AD on behalf of the king Rudradaman, and what he had carved into the rock is quite telling. For one thing, it shows a continued alliance between royalty and philosophy. Rudradaman boasts that in addition to his martial prowess and good looks, he has knowledge and practice of grammar, music, logic, and other great sciences. But even more interesting than what he has to say is the language in which he says it, namely Sanskrit, whereas Ashoka's inscriptions are mostly in Prakrit. It's really at this stage that Sanskrit is beginning to establish itself as the main language you need to learn if you want to read the primary sources of Indian philosophy. The Buddha himself would have spoken Prakrit, and as we saw, the Buddhist canon was composed in Pali. 
but as we move forward, almost all philosophical literature is written in Sanskrit. For Brahmanic authors, Sanskrit, the language of revelation and of Panini's grammar, has a unique status. It alone is eternal. Buddhists are never going to accept this exceptionalist story, but they nonetheless begin to write in the language of their Brahmanic adversaries. And adversarial relationships are indeed crucial to philosophy in the Age of the Sutra. From our earlier description of the Sutra and accompanying Bhashya as a web of interconnected ideas, you might have gotten the impression that the resulting text is a self-contained systematic presentation of ideas, more reminiscent of the elements of Euclid than the dialectical exchange of Plato's dialogues or the treatises of Aristotle. But precisely because the authors of these works are sensitive to challenges from other schools, they are constantly alluding to potential objections and seeking to supply well-reasoned answers to those objections. In the Sanskrit terminology, these are called purva-paksha and siddhanta, respectively. In this respect, philosophical literature in the age of the sutra holds on to something of the dialogue structure that was such a hallmark of the Upanishads and the more philosophical sections of the Mahabharata, to say nothing of many stories told about the Buddha in the Pali canon. One final cautionary note about the classification into six systems is that these traditions are not equally systematic. The idea applies pretty well to Nyaya and Vaisheshika, but less well to Samkhya and Yoga. These are not so much philosophical systems as bodies of philosophical method. As such, they recall the philosophies of path and purpose we have seen in the earlier period. Though they do have their canonical sutras, these were in fact composed retrospectively, in an attempt to provide these traditions of thought with the same sort of authority and historical lineage that other schools were claiming to have. The Samkhya Sutra, in fact, dates from as late as the 14th century. So, what are the main topics of debate being pursued in the sutras and their commentaries? Here too we see a degree of continuity with the earlier period. One dominant question is whether or not there is a self that underlies all cognition and experience. As we know, the Buddhists deny this while the Brahmanic culture asserts the reality of the self. But we should beware of oversimplification. Within Buddhism, there are disagreements in this period about how we can account for the apparent survival of one and the same person across time and even across incarnations. And on the so-called orthodox side, there are major differences of opinion, with the Mimamsa school developing the self as an empirically engaged agent where other traditions hold on to the idea of the self as a pure consciousness that remains in itself aloof from cognition and agency. The means by which the self, if there is one, comes to know the world around it and its own nature is also much debated in this period, with the Nyaya school making especially powerful contributions in epistemology. Against such positive accounts of knowledge, a more skeptical note is struck within Buddhism and also Jainism. The Jainas developed the remarkable idea that truth depends inevitably on one's own standpoint, what we would now call a perspectivist approach to epistemology. In metaphysics, too, there are fundamental disagreements in this period. The Vaisheshika philosophical school tries to establish six fundamental categories of reality, and again there are very different rival views, including the aforementioned naturalism of the Charvakas. While much of the philosophical action thus deals with issues in philosophy of mind, epistemology, and metaphysics, 
thinkers in this period do not simply drop the earlier concern with ethics and salvation. The brilliant philosopher Nagarjuna, founder of the Madhyamika school within Buddhism, is a good example. He is best known for his radical doctrine of emptiness, but he never loses sight of the fact that the goal of accepting this doctrine, or perhaps we should say non-doctrine, is freedom from suffering. Let's now finish this episode with a quick rundown of the schools we keep mentioning. This will probably be too much for you to take in all at once, but it may be helpful as a first glimpse, and if you want to refer back later. Let's begin with Nyaya. Its foundational treatise, the Nyaya Sutra, was probably compiled somewhere in the 1st or 2nd century AD. The traditional name of the compiler is Gautama, sometimes called Akshapada, one whose eyes are in his feet, apparently in reference to the foundationalism and empiricism of his system. He forcefully advocates the so-called pramana method as a method for rational inquiry, a pramana being a way of gaining knowledge or a principle of justification. For him, all knowledge is based on three main sources, perception, inference, and testimony, though he adds a fourth source called comparison, whose exact meaning is somewhat unclear. The first and fifth chapters of the Nyaya Sutra concentrate on techniques for conducting debates, and it has been speculated that they originally formed a separate text of their own. So, the main issues in Nyaya philosophy are the nature of philosophical inquiry, the epistemology of the sources of knowledge, and the theory of debate. As we already mentioned, there is an allied philosophical system called Vaisheshika. Its canonical text is Kannada's Vaisheshika Sutra, which may already have been composed around 100 BC. Vaisheshika's main claim to fame is something we already mentioned, a six-category metaphysics that influenced thinkers across the spectrum of Indian philosophy. A third system, Mimamsa, was in the first instance a system of Vedic hermeneutics. In other words, it was concerned with the interpretation and clarification of the Vedas, the defense of Vedic authority, and the analysis of the meaning of Vedic ritual injunctions. As you might guess, the foundational text for this tradition is called the Mimamsa Sutra. It is difficult to date this sutra with any accuracy. Perhaps in some form it already existed in about 400 BC, and its compilation as the version we now have took place in the following few centuries. The Mimamsa Sutra is traditionally attributed to Jaimini, while the Bhashya was written by Shabara in about 400 AD. Though Mimamsa continued to focus on Vedic interpretation, this endeavor led them to consider a much wider range of philosophical issues. They shared with Nyaya a broadly realist epistemology and contributed in particular to the theory of perception. In the 7th century, the school divided into two sub-schools, one following Kumarila Bhatta and the other Prabhakara. Jaimini's Mimamsa Sutra has a twin work in the shape of Badarayana's Vedanta Sutra, also known as the Brahma Sutra. The two authors were contemporaries, and it has even been suggested that there was a certain amount of collaboration between them. We can sum up the division of labor as follows. Jaimini, in the Mimamsa Sutra, is focused on the ritual formulations of the Vedas, and on the concept of dharma, or duty, the actions one ought to perform. Hence the name of the school. Mimamsa means investigation, and for Jaimini, the investigation that matters is the one that helps him to understand the ritual prescriptions of the Vedas. In the case of Badarayana's Vedanta Sutra, the clue to its motivation is again in the name. 
Vedanta means what comes after the Vedas, that is, the Upanishads. So, the philosophical themes of the Upanishads are also the themes of Bhadarayana and the Vedanta school that follows in his wake. Cosmic unity, Brahman, and the quest to discover Brahman within one's own self. The Vedanta Sutra also illustrates our point about inter-school rivalry. Its four chapters defend the view that Brahman is the central concern of the scriptures and that there is only one consistent interpretation of them. These claims are set out in opposition to the ideas of the Vaisheshika school, not to mention Buddhist and Jaina views, which are all subjected to refutation. In the Vedanta Sutra, we also have an extended description of the spiritual exercises that will lead an individual to comprehend his or her identity with Brahman. This reference to spiritual exercises leads us naturally onto the Yoga Sutra, attributed to the mythical Vyasa. More likely, though, both it and the Yoga Basya were written by someone called Patanjali, who is probably not the grammarian who commented on Panini. This Patanjali itemizes the elements needed to subdue or arrest mental disturbance, restraint and observance, restraint from injuring others, from stealing, from lying, from greed, observance of habits of cleanliness, purification, and study. Then there are posture, regulation of breathing, abstraction of the senses, concentration, meditation, and trance. Backing up this account of spiritual discipline is a detailed theory of the nature of the mind, in which the unchanging self is distinguished from the states that constitute a mental life. The yoga school became theistic, God entering the picture as a self of this sort, one unaffected by suffering or actions. Providing further theoretical backbone to spiritual discipline, and yet without any obvious initial acceptance of theism, is Samkhya philosophy. We mentioned that in this case the sutra of the school came only much later. Its foundational document is instead Ishvara Krishna's Samkhya Karika, meaning verses on Samkhya. Ishvara Krishna insists on a strict dualism between the self, on the one hand, and nature or matter, on the other. It is out of original matter that the material world evolves, according to the law that an effect pre-exists in its cause. Strikingly, though, what evolves is what we think of as mental phenomena. First intellect, then sense of self, then mind, then the five domains of sense experience and the senses, and finally the five material elements, air, light, water, earth, and ether. All this is essentially a part of nature, with the true self transcending all processes of natural evolution. And there you have it. Along with the Chadvaka naturalists, these six schools are going to be occupying our attention for the next 20 episodes or so. So, all these unfamiliar names will become familiar in due course, as we get to know Nyaya epistemology, interpret Mimamsa hermeneutics, and tackle some of the positions taken up in yoga. After we've looked at all these schools, it will be time to turn to the critical voices among the Buddhists and Jainas. But, since skeptical worries form such an important part of the context for this whole period, we're going to begin by exploring the emergence of nagging philosophical doubts concerning the efficacy of action, especially Vedic ritual, and the possibility of knowledge. As we'll see, skeptical arguments were put forward against and within the philosophical schools. Yet, we're absolutely certain that you'll want to join us next time as we start to pick up the threads in the Age of the Sutra, here on The History of Philosophy in India. Allah, eh.